Aloha, I'm Ash. Aloha, I'm Matt. We are the Yoga Couple. Welcome back to another episode of the Inner Work Podcast. This episode is all about how to incorporate mindfulness into our lives. Mindfulness is a super hot buzzword right now, which makes both of us really happy because we definitely want the world to find out about mindfulness and meditation. But in this episode, what we hope to do is to delve into the practicality of it and how you can start living a more mindful life and all of the benefits that that entails. Um, we are bringing on a expert in the field. Um, he's an author of From Suffering to Peace, and he's been meditating for, I think, over 30 years. He teaches meditation teacher trainings and all of the things. But before we dive into that, uh, I just want to talk to you, Matt, and share mm. our own personal experiences on mindfulness and meditation. What does mindfulness mean to you? Mm. Yeah, mine kind of my experience with mindfulness was really cultivated over time. It started with, um, I think when I started studying psychology, I guess would be the seed, right? Like the original seed of starting to understand that my mind has this whole world of its own. And then I think when I got to naturopathic medical school is when it really got real because I, f I finally had, you know, that colleague of mine that was a former Buddhist monk and really, you know, taught me a lot about meditation and about self-realization. And then honestly, it was this book that I randomly found at a coffee shop, uh, a group of us in school at that time, we were going to Sedona for uh, just like a weekend getaway. And while we were there, we stopped at a coffee shop, everyone had to like, do their thing, go to the bathroom or something. And if for whatever reason, I was just kind of sitting around just waiting. And it was like a borrow, you know, take and, take and give like a bookshelf, you know, where it's like going to borrow it, bring back or contribute type of thing. And I, my eye just randomly got caught on this book that was called The Power of the Subconscious Mind. And it was by Joseph Murphy. And I just was like, I was hooked. And the book talks all about, obviously, the subconscious mind, but how to cultivate the power of the subconscious mind everything was in there was about meditation and was about how to access this state of awareness and paying attention to your habitual thoughts you know and so from there i think it just kind of spiraled for me and turned into a kind of an almost like an obsession of being aware <laughs> of like aware of my thoughts aware of what i was uh, my beliefs you know like everything came into question like why do i believe that well why is that benefiting me is it not benefiting me and then i think overall it just it just slowly morphed then then i got introduced to yoga philosophy from my friends and colleagues at the time um uh, uh, one of my friends was a yogi like total yogi a practitioner of yoga a teacher of yoga i'd been to india the whole works and then i think when it it really took off especially when i discovered my teacher david hawkins and you know he really taught me that formal meditations are useful which is what i was doing at the time but in order to truly make lasting change we have to transition to a contemplative lifestyle which is essentially mindfulness it's it's in it's a lifestyle in which you constantly are aware of what's going on and being being aware of of how your ego is playing out what patterns are showing up so that pretty much every moment is ripe for a real a realization mm. you know you could be sitting in traffic and noticing frustration arise and then be like whoa like 
sitting in traffic is an enlightening moment or uh you know you're you're talking to someone and you start to get a little irritated or you start judging them or you judge yourself like every moment of life suddenly became an epiphany like waiting to happen you know and so for me i think at that point when my spiritual practice became like absolutely serious to the point where every day from waking up to going to bed i was very very conscious trying to build this new practice of mindfulness i think that's when it like officially took took root for me so i don't know it's kind of been maybe a 12 year type type of journey for me now um and what about you i would imagine was your first exposure yoga uh, actually, I found meditation first, mm. and I was in my teens. I don't remember how old, but I found a book on meditation. I don't remember the name of the book, but it was more of like a manual of how to meditate. I don't think I really understood what the living practice of, of mindfulness was at the time. I think I was just really curious about alternative lifestyle choices mm -hmm. and I was just open to anything that was kind of different. Like I wanted to just cultivate a healthier, happier life for myself because growing up in Las Vegas, I felt like I was overexposed to the opposite of that, which was the unconscious, which was kind of just following your desires all the way down the road and mm. doing whatever you want, buying whatever you want, um, just kind of inflated ego mentality. It, it was kind of glamorized in, in that city particularly. Right. And it really turned me off and wanted I wanted to find something different. So, mm. so I was looking and I, I found a meditation book. And I think it rocked my world because sitting down and getting still and quiet for the first few times in my life opened me up to the possibility of what else was possible for me. Mm -hmm. I felt like there was so much more to my existence the first few times of just sitting down and being still and watching my thoughts and feeling that expanded awareness open up. Right. And then I think that um, really just that started me off on, I wanted to find all the things. <laughs> I found yoga, I found mindfulness, I found, um, I found Ayurveda, I found acupuncture, I found, you know, texts on consciousness. And then it was just, you know, it was over by then. And then I was, like, <laughs> I was an alien. You were in. I was a weirdo. I joined the cult. <laughs> and um, I, I'm really excited to bring on our guest today, Mark Coleman. He's the author of From Suffering to Peace. And the reason why we're, you know, we're bringing him on is obviously we're the Interwork podcast, but that this mindfulness thing, like I said earlier, it's really taking off right now, which mm -hmm. makes me so, so happy. Like, I don't know, the young kids today have this like hashtag called woke, mm. where it's like, it's cool to be awake. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. I think it's so cool. I'm woke. Right. I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> I and I'm happy about that. And I think it's really important that we continue to look to, you know, our elders and to the experts to keep the um, integrity of the practice mm. alive as it's gaining popularity. You know, things get watered down, right? right? And while it's great that it's getting popularized, it's really important to keep the integrity and the initial um, purpose of the practice alive. Right. And we definitely have uh, such a, 
an honor to be interviewing Mark too, because he's even the founder of the Mindfulness Institute. So uh, really a wealth of knowledge, I'm sure on this topic, it's just going to be fantastic. He also has a master's in clinical psychology. So I just, I just am so excited. This is yeah, like, and one other uh, thing he does that's so fun for really me. cool is he leads these like outdoor nature adventure mm. retreat immersions where he integrates mindfulness and meditation into the wild and i really love that and i know you love that too i know i'm uh, yeah i want to go i, I want to be mark i want yeah. i want to do what mark's doing i want to i want to live he's like uh, yeah this he's is, awesome uh, this is amazing and he also does formal teacher trainings on meditation so he teaches uh, practitioners the meditation to become meditation teachers mm -hmm. so um without further ado let's bring mark on we're going to cover all the things what mindfulness is why it benefits us how we can actually live a mindful life how we can start to integrate this practice in a really real and tangible way yeah let's bring this amazing man on mark welcome to the show Well, Mark, we're so excited to have you on the Inner Work Podcast. Matt and I are super interested in all the things that you do, teaching mindfulness, and we know that you um, lead outdoor adventures that combine mindfulness um, with just experiencing nature, and we're super into it. But for our listeners, could you just tell them a little bit more about yourself and your own path that led you to becoming a mindfulness teacher, and when did you first start meditating? Sure. So, um, one, very happy to be uh, on your podcast. And, um, yeah, I started meditating back um, about 35 years ago. I was, I was raised in England and um, was in London at the time. I was at college and was a very unhappy, confused young man. I was a punk rocker and anarchist and part of a big squatting movement. And um, anyhow, I was just seeking something that would help me sort out in a turmoil I was going through and I happened to stumble across what back then was, a, was an unusual uh, Buddhist meditation center in the east end of London and uh, happened to be introduced to mindfulness practice meditation and loving kindness meditation and uh, those two practices have really stayed with me for the last 35 years I spent this time both studying meditation, but mostly in the Buddhist context, mostly in the insight meditation tradition, but also going to Asia and Europe and, and the States, various teachers, and been teaching now for probably since the last 20 years. I'm connected to a center called Spirit Rock in Northern California. And then the last 15 years or more, I've been integrating my meditation work and teaching um, with nature. As you mentioned, I uh, run a lot of nature-based meditation programs and retreats where we integrate mindfulness and learn how to bring that contemplative awareness into the outdoors, which is a very profound way both to meditate and also uh, discover a deep connection and resonance with nature. Wow. Love it. Well, you have um, so much experience, so we're so excited to, to dive into this interview because we have so many questions. But one of the first questions we have is that, you know, mindfulness is really a buzzword right now. So, um, there's no one better to ask than you. Could you define that word more clearly for us? What exactly is mindfulness? Yeah, so mindfulness, very simply put, is it's a clear awareness. It's, it's a clarity. It's a knowing quality of attention. 
that simply knowing what's happening is it's happening. So my short definition of mindfulness is clear awareness. Longer definition is it's the awareness of a mind, body, a mental, emotional, physical, and environmental experience with clarity, with kindness, and with curiosity. So we bring this quality of attention of awareness and we can learn to uh, direct that attention to our inner experience, to our outer experience, to our relational experience, to a more global experience. And it's something that everybody has. Everybody has uh, awareness. And mindfulness is really just the way to cultivate and train attention so we are not lost, you know, as we mostly are in our head, in our thoughts, in our worries, our plans, our past, our future, and actually learn to really be present for life and the beauty and all of it uh, as it's happening. Mm, beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so tell us about your book, From Suffering to Peace, It is the True Promise of Mindfulness. So now that we have this mindfulness uh, kind of definition clear, tell us about this, this uh, amazing, beautiful book you wrote and uh, what inspired you to write it. Yeah, so From Suffering to Peace, I wrote that Partly because I've been teaching for 20 years, and I both trained in a very traditional Buddhist mindfulness uh, insight context. And also, for the last 15 years, I formed an institute called the Mindfulness Institute, where I, where I realized very quickly after teaching that many, many people, most people, were not going to step foot in a meditation center or a Buddhist retreat place. And so I started... Uh, Finding ways to translate mindfulness into you know into organizations and business and healthcare and prisons and psychology and um, and so I've been teaching it in a in a more secular context for for the last decade and a half and so I've really seen back when I started I, in the early 2000s mindfulness was still not that well known and as you mentioned it's become vogue it's become sort of the next buzz thing whether it's in business or healthcare or in media. And so I've watched this this explosion from what was a quite a small, some somewhat obscure practice to being very um, uh, made available and wide-reaching to you know across the world and, and every sector of society is now engaging in some ways with mindfulness. And of course, when anything explodes like that, and not in a similar way to the yoga uh, movement. Um, often the, the depth and the context and the clarity and the real purpose of these ancient practices gets lost. It gets mm. commodified, it gets sold, and we lose the deeper meaning. And, and that's very true with, with mindfulness. It's become, you know, something that's, um, uh, sold in, in, you know, whether it's through apps or other way, other, other means. And so my, so having had a lot of experience in both the sort of traditional and the mainstream Worlds of mindfulness. I thought I was in a unique place to write a book about well, what mindfulness is. How do I, how do we not lose the depth of the tradition and, and its context, which is really it's a path, just like yoga. It's a path of, of developing freedom and, and liberation and, and cultivating mm -hmm. the heart and, and qualities of compassion and really living with a sense of uh, peace and well-being on a profound level. And so I wanted to speak to that depth, but also make it accessible to a mainstream audience, someone in the street who loves to meditate at work or, you know, in a coffee shop or on an app. So I'm spanning these two worlds of the depth of the tradition and, and making it very accessible 
to a contemporary life and context. I love it. I love that you're creating um, a bridge for, like you just said, for, for anyone and everybody to, to really embody and learn the true practices in, in our modern world. Um, you speak a lot about embodied awareness. How can we begin to develop that ourselves? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, being yoga teachers, uh, the body is you know so important in, in life and in meditation and um the body is you know is a great uh support when when we're paying attention to the body we're in the present moment the body is is the doorway through the senses through our physical experience to being present and you know as you know most most of us a lot of the time live in our heads and our stories and our ideas and so we lose contact especially now with technology even more losing contact with our physical sensory experience, including the breath. And, and the breath is one aspect of embodiment. It's a very beautiful, easy, accessible way to cultivate attention and also to bring a certain calm and ease to the nervous system. And so what my, mindfulness, uh, contrary to popular opinion, often we see you know, pictures of meditators on magazines and they're floating in the clouds and they look like they're blissing out. And that's really one, only one side of meditation. Meditation can lead to very beautiful, joyful states. But it really what mindfulness is about is, is being present to life. And that's both the beauty and the challenge and the joys and the sorrows. And so and we train using the body because the body is, 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 a, is an amazing teacher. It's really obvious when we're actually present to our physical experience and when we're not. And so the body becomes this constant friend and companion that when we learn how to be present to our bodies we can be present in any situation however stressful mm. yeah i feel like that uh, you're right through yoga does really help draw attention to kind of paying attention to the shifts that can happen in your body throughout the day and then helping bring awareness to it i've always been taught too that you know to be most effective like formal meditation is useful but what about when you're going about your day you're at work you're interacting with people and to really make it stick or in other words really start to transform your life it needs to evolve into a an embodied awareness or in other words a a contemplative lifestyle where you're always aware of the shifts and changes even as we interact and as we try to go about life, not losing that, you know, so I really love that you kind of say like it's embodied, it's, it's all the time, it's right now while we're talking, how are we feeling, how are we breathing, how is the experience and awareness still there, you know, how do we not fall out of it? Uh, in the, right. and, and it's funny, you know, speaking of that, how do we fall out of it? In the book, you say that we have this, this self-judgment that is a modern epidemic. And I find that self-judgment is, is such a huge way that we do fall out of this awareness. So um, how and what do you think we can kind of do about this to, to stop getting lost in this in, incredible self-judgment? Yeah, no, you bring up a, a really important point. Um, you know, having um, like taught, you know, for, for a couple of decades, you know, one of the main things that I see that cause 
people the most distress and anxiety and suffering is, is the way uh, people judge themselves, are critical, are harsh, or mean. Um, and I do feel like it's an epidemic. My last book, How Make Peace With Your Mind, was specifically focused on how to free yourself from the critic because I, I just kept seeing it again and again and again with students all over the world. And, um, and the subtitle of that book is How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Critic. And I do believe those two qualities, the qualities of mindfulness and awareness and the quality of compassion are essential for working with the critic. And why that is, is because without awareness, without awareness turned to our mind, turned to our thoughts, turned to the ways that we talk to ourselves, berate ourselves, judge ourselves, compare ourselves, put ourselves down, if we don't see that stream of thoughts, you know, moment by moment, we're likely to be at the influence of those thoughts. But when we can actually bring a mindful awareness to see, oh, look at that, there, there I go again, I'm putting myself down, and look at that, and now I'm comparing myself negatively to someone, or I'm you know, pushing myself and berating myself for not having done something perfectly. The more awareness we can bring to that, those thoughts, the more likely we are to be able to step back, to unhook, to see see them for what they are, which is really they're just thoughts. They're, and what I tell my students is they're just points of view. You know, what, what your critic has to say about how great your yoga class was or how great your parenting is or not or, you know, how you engage in this conversation or, you know, get in this performance. Um, it's really a point of view. And, if, and usually the, ne- the critic's point of view is negative perfectionistic oriented and of course I've never met a perfect human being so that standard is, is kind of a setup for misery to start with right. and um, so the mindfulness just helps you know reveal what's happening in the mind and then with that clarity and this is where come back to the purpose of, of the book um, you know, the true purpose of mindfulness mindfulness bring, gives us the awareness of what's happening including our mental patterns in this case judging which causes suffering and the, the, the point of the practice is to see how we suffer, to see how we unnecessarily beat ourselves up or put ourselves down, for example. And then with that seeing, we can let, we have a choice to continue or to let it go, to continue or to find another more constructive, uh, balanced perspective. And then the compassion piece is important because, as we all know, having a strong inner critic is very painful and it leads to nothing but misery for the most part. And so the more that we can bring kindness and care to ourselves and self-compassion, that also helps us unhook from its uh, in a very feisty um, critiques. Mm. Yeah, we always say in the inner work that, like to try to help people see that, I love how you said, you know, these perspectives are, they're just a perspective, first of all. It's just one perspective. It's not the one and only. And then on top of that, you know, if we really were to dissect these perspectives, they're ultimately a little arbitrary. <laughs> like you yeah. have, we have technically available infinite perspectives on any situation. So whichever one our inner critic is latching onto is really just an arbitrary stopping point along an infinite spectrum that it could have chosen. It just happens to get latched onto this particular limiting one. And uh, it's, I like the compassion part for us. It's always helped is to just to remind me, when I really start to explore where did I inherit, where did my inner critic start to inherit these, I see that a lot of it kind of comes from a lot of modeling or inheritance. And then that helps me have even more compassion because I realize it's not even 
it's not even like who I truly am. This is just something that our brain kind of my my mind kind of just subconsciously at, attached to, you know, as if, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. Everyone else is being self-judgmental. So I guess I'll be self-judgmental too. And and then you're right. It becomes right. It, at that point, it does become an epidemic because now it's literally almost like a uh, a subconscious disease that's spreading through modeling and uh, inheriting, <laughs> kind of projecting onto each other. Uh, uh-huh. So tell us about dissatisfaction. It kind of goes along the same this same um, vein here. How does mindfulness help us deal with dissatisfaction in in maybe a similar way? Yeah. So so this this particular teaching really comes from from uh, Buddhist teaching where where most mindfulness practices come from, um, and it's really looking at. Um, Again, how we create unnecessary suffering, and one of the ways, one of the most common ways we create a lot of unnecessary stress for ourselves is we is we look for happiness in the wrong place. So, and one of the main ways we do that is we expect things to continue. And of course, we we know we know at least on an intellectual level that nothing continues forever, nothing lasts forever. Everything has a time limit on it, and so we we often. Um, we kind of trip ourselves up by expecting happiness and satisfaction to to come from things that aren't capable of doing that because nothing lasts. So it keeps us on the treadmill, you know, in, in, in traditional languages, the, the treadmill of samsara. We keep looking for happiness in things that aren't capable of providing lasting happiness because they change. Whether that's from, you know, a simple you know, tub of ice cream to a relationship to, you know, a new electric car or whatever it is that we're into. Um, there's a way that we uh, keep uh, looking for for transient things to provide lasting satisfaction. Not that things can't provide a lot of joy and happiness, and they do. You know, we spring right, right now in California is beautiful flowers and green grassy hillsides and, and I'm, I'm a big lover of, of nature and, and the beauty and I also know you know especially in California the grass doesn't stay green for very long the flowers have a very short <laughs> right. season and 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 I can sometimes find myself like when I'm hiking like saying to the hills like don't turn green don't turn gray don't turn brown don't turn yellow <laughs> and it's like well you know and I know that that's not going to make any difference and I know they're going to turn green but there's part of it that still hungers for that, you know, that thing to stay permanent, which I like, which of course it never will. So it's just seeing where we where we look for happiness in in, in things, people, places, experiences that um, the true happiness comes from actually being able to enjoy something, as the poet Blake says, "Kiss the joy as it flies, live, live in eternity, sunrise." So we can appreciate beauty and people and experiences and food or whatever it is that we're enjoying, but knowing not, you know, with a sort of open, open fist, with, with a lightness, with a relaxedness, so we can appreciate it and let it go, knowing mm-hmm. that every experience, you know, releases. I love that. Uh, and as you're saying all that, I'm just thinking of all the little moments, you know, where I might have these expectations that are ruining the moment, ruining my ability to be grateful. And, and I'm thinking in my head right now, as you're saying all of this, it's, all, it's as if when we have the expectations, we're clinging because we think, you know, this is what's going to make us happy. 
Um, and we really need to cling to it because it's, it's a source of our happiness. We have this expectation on our reality, but it's actually the acceptance that everything is fleeting that creates that gratitude for the moment because we know it's temporary and that gives us so much more joy having that perspective of everything is just passing. So I'm just going to be here with what is. Right. I love right. it. Um, you talk a lot about um, that attachment to pleasure seeking and, and avoidance of, of pain. Can you talk a little bit more about how we get caught up in that struggle of, um, you spoke a little bit about how we might have our expectations on what we want and, and things providing us happiness. But what about that other half of it, which is the, avoidance of things that we don't want right right yeah and again this is where mindfulness is really and i found it for myself and i see it in others to be incredibly helpful um basically you know mindfulness is, is the training is learning to meet life oneself each other reality as it is and of course we want our life to be pleasurable and happy and easeful and we don't particularly want pain and stress and difficulty and loss and hardship. And, and of course, reality is, you know, life is a mix of all of those things. And the more that we resist, avoid, suppress what we don't like, what we don't want, and physical sensations or emotions or, or thought patterns or relationship dynamics, the more that we try and avoid and suppress that stuff, of course, if that worked, then there'd be lots of books saying, hey, let me tell you how to suppress your stuff. Let me tell you how to dump all that negative stuff. Uh, but of course, it doesn't work. It just you know, it either festers, it comes out in other ways. Um, there's a great line, I think I quote in the book from, from a Thai teacher, Atan Chah. He says, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. Mm-hmm. And we won't do this. You know, none of us want to, you know, you know, sit and, you know, have a lot of pain and stress, but that is part of life. And, so the, the the key principle with mindfulness is understanding that experience experience in and of itself, whatever the experience, whether it's beautiful or difficult, in and of itself isn't the key to happiness or suffering. It's how we relate to it. So, for example, I, I have I have back pain, I have neck pain, I have all kinds of you know, not all kinds, but a few different chronic areas of pain. And I know that when I can just bring a kind, curious, mindful attention to those areas of sensation and tension and contraction, it's just that. It's just sensation. It's unpleasant. I don't want it. I don't like it. But if I can stay relaxed around it and welcoming of it rather than fighting it and judging and contracting around it, then it's just what it is. It's just, you know, unpleasant, you know, tingling and stabbing and, and you know, all these different sensations. But when, when I, when I'm, either tired or I'm just not wanting to have that experience and I resist it and judge it or judge myself and not having done something to relieve it, then that becomes a lot more stressful, a lot more suffering. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's that, that simple equation, uh, uh, suffering equals pain times resistance. When we can mm-hmm. open to pain with kindness, with curiosity, you know, it, it's not necessarily pleasant, but it's workable. But when we start fighting and, being in contention, struggling, resisting, hating, judging, that creates a lot more suffering and, and stress. And so that's where mindfulness helps us learn to meet all experience, whether it's beautiful or difficult, and find ease in the midst of it. And that's the freedom that this practice 
offers us the possibility of finding ease in you know with with the highs and the lows of life. Wow, that was so well said. I'm like having a moment here. That was really, <laughs> that was really good. Yeah, exactly. Just letting it letting it all flow. I've always uh, what's helped me too in that vein is like the uh, not getting attached to it as me, right? Like um, identifying with it. Uh, this pain right. or like, you know, th- these things are arising as unpleasant sensations. The mind, I feel like, has a tendency to start attaching to it is like, like, I guess it's what you were saying in the judgment and feeling like, well, this is about me. This is, well, this is my fault or I did this or I shouldn't have this happen to me or, you know, it starts to become this. Identified. Yeah, identified. And then it becomes a resistance. And I, I love that definition. Suffering is pain plus resistance. Because you're right, it's that resistance that really makes us suffer. Um, in that same way, I feel like a part of it comes from these unconscious biases that we form. And I love that you talk about that in the book, of this, this term unconscious bias. Uh, could you tell us more about what is, what is this unconscious biases that we inherit? Yeah, so again, you know, what, how mindfulness uh, helps, um, you know, our, our experience is, you know, it, it's shining the light of awareness on our experience. And of course, we all have blind spots and we have bias and much of that bias is con- unconscious. So, um, you know, part of uh, my, the, the journey of mindfulness to, to, to really wake up and to be clear with oneself and experience is to see where is our perception Distorted. Where is it we don't see clearly? And, and the, the inner critic, for example, is a very simple example of the inner bias, where we have a, where we only look at ourselves through a negative lens. So when we look in the mirror, that lens has a bias, and it's and it's fault finding. Um, so negativity bias is one example of, of unconscious bias, or sometimes it's conscious. Um, and then there are, you know, many other layers of bias. We're all conditioned by our society, our culture, media, family, religion, and um, and and those those influences, you know, mostly go in as we're as we're growing up as children and go in quite deeply, and lead to um, particular kinds of perceptions and, and biases uh, in ways that may not be. So helpful, you know, and so so I, so one of the one of the the subject areas where this is causes such a lot of suffering is around racism, and you know, certain you know, often people are conditioned growing up by culture, by family, media, etc., to have certain uh, biases uh, around basically anyone who's other, mm. and anyone who's other is therefore usually treated. Negatively, and there's negative media portrayals and um, stereotypes, you know, which is the basis for prejudice and discrimination. Um, and so, you know, maybe you grew up in a family, for example, where um, uh, only the men worked, or only the men went to college, and so the bias is that men are sort of by nature intellectually superior, you know, and that, and that conditioning comes down the school system. Generally, girls think they're not smart at math and science because of that cultural bias, for example. Um, uh, uh, or people of color, 
the bias and the conditioning may have been that people of color, if you grew up in a white community, may be you know treated with some suspicion or some critical attitude. And again, that those these messages get imprinted usually at a young age, and so it takes some work to uncover our bias, and, and with that bias often comes uh, distortion and, and a lot of suffering. And we see, you know, just like um, growing up in Europe, as I did, and the, the, the current sort of re-arising of prejudice, discrimination, anti-immigration, uh, feelings and laws, um, that's all the product of, of bias. And it, can, it just leads to just a tremendous amount of unnecessary suffering. Mm. It makes me feel so hopeful as you're talking about all of this that mindfulness can really help, you know, reveal those unconscious biases and then also draw awareness to them. And if the whole world, you know, starts picking up mindfulness, there's so much hope um, for, you know, violence and hatred and um, all of these things to, you know, subside and, and not be such a prevalent issue in humanity as we all start to become more self-aware. So I'm really happy that mindfulness is becoming trendy and, and more and more people are finding out about it and that your book specifically, like you said, is, is such a bridge for people to really learn the true practices and, and to start a mindfulness practice. You say in the book on, on the same subject that you, you quote a quote from a 17th century Zen master that says, and I love this quote, don't side with yourself. Could you elaborate more on um, how you interpret that statement? Yeah, so I I love that quote, um, and uh, it's written in the context of you know one of the things that mindfulness helps reveal is around our identity and our self view and the self referencing and um, and and of course you know as human beings we 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 do side with ourselves we side with our our family or our culture or particular perspectives on life. And, um, you know, we see this uh, when, we're, when we're reflecting, like in meditation often, say you've had an argument with someone at work or a spouse or someone in the family, and we're busily rehashing and replaying that argument. Of course, for the most part, who we're siding with in that moment is ourselves. Why did they say that? It's so mean. I'm going to say this when I see them again. And and so we get we get lost we get very swept up in um, uh, or very attached to a certain kind of position or perspective uh, that's that's quite subjective in the same way that the mm. critic's perspective is is subjective and, and limited and so is ours and so um, basically the the idea of not studying yourself is not, not to dismiss or diminish your own feelings and perspectives and thoughts and views but to see that um, they're often limited. And so, especially mm-hmm. in conflict and conversation and relationship, if we can step outside of ourselves or, or become bigger than our limited view and go, okay, let me see this situation, conflict, disagreement from another person's point of view, another person's perspective, that usually becomes much uh, greater grounds for some kind of constructive revolution. If we just stick, stay stuck in our own position and view, um, we, it usually becomes more oppositional, conflictual, uh, we usually dig in our heels, and so when we can have a broader perspective, it allows much more room for dialogue and negotiation and just, you know, seeing things outside of our own little bubble. 
Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's uh, something for us all to really always step back and remember that as humans, we are just so, so limited. (laughs) We just don't know. And it would be so helpful for us all to just kind of always remember like as much as our ego mind, this, this mind of ours likes to make us feel like it knows and it knows everything and it's so funny when you really start to practice mindfulness you just begin to notice how uh i guess speaking for myself i i've always noticed how my mind is almost like hilarious in the ridiculous things that it claims it knows and how convict like how much conviction it has in its opinion and and then you know we always step back from it and just be like there's no way i have no idea what people are going through i have no idea of all the mysteries and and magic of this life and i feel like that's always really helped me become more you know self-compassionate uh and and it's it's just like we need to remember how limited we are and in your book, you you really draw attention to that, and you even talk about how there's there's three components to really foster that self compassion. Could you elaborate on that for our listeners? Yeah. So yeah, and I, I just wanted to reiterate what you were saying. It's very important that we uh, bring, and then I talk about it, in a mature practice, we learn to integrate awareness and kindness, or mm. mindfulness and compassion, and yeah, partly because you know, life isn't easy for anybody, no matter how blessed your circumstances. You have a body, you have relationships, things change, you lose things. Um, and, you know, we have a mind that can be often unruly and crazy, and we have a, and a critic. And so it's important that we learn not just to meet experience with awareness, which is essential for anything, for growing and understanding, but also that we meet that with kindness and care because a lot of what we're learning to meet is actually quite challenging and difficult. And so the first facet of of, uh, self-compassion, which comes from Kristen Knapp's research uh, on self-compassion, is we learn to meet our experience with kindness rather than judgment. Mm. And it's so very easy to judge our body for how it is, judge our mind for what it's thinking, judge our emotions for being reactive or whatever. But for the most part, you know, we, we sort of, we live in this body and mind and not, not as victims, but so much of what happens in us uh, is, you know, is, is sort of our conditioning and um, you know, physical laws playing out. You know, like, you know, just again, going back to my example of having chronic pain in my back and neck and things, like I could, I could judge myself for like, well, if I only did more yoga, then I would, I would, I could be free of pain. Versus, well, that might be true. And what's true right now is your back's hurting and your neck's hurting, and you need to be kind to yourself and take care of yourself, mm-hmm. and and not add more suffering by beating yourself up. And then the second uh, facet is understanding that uh, our common humanity. You know, often we give ourselves a hard time. Maybe we're feeling sad or lonely or, or empty or deficient. Or, and, and then the judge comes in uh, and says, well, you know, that's pathetic. Get over yourself. You're the only person who's really feeling miserable. Everybody else is fine and happy. What's your problem? And, and so it's important. So we, when we shift to common humanity, it's a way of um, understanding, oh, yeah, this is part of the human experience. We have highs. We have lows. We feel good. We feel sad. And... Um, 
when we get that it's not our, our, our fault, right? Again, it's not siding with yourself, getting, seeing the bigger picture. It's like, oh yeah, this is part of being human. Mm. And then the third, the third feature, which you point to a little, the disidentification. Um, again, when, when something happens in us, whether it's a strong and painful emotion or difficult event or, um, physical pain, um, we can often get so wrapped up in that and lose the space. And, and with, with that, when we, when we lose space, we tend to get, we tend to get more reactive to experience. And so mindfulness, in a way, allows us to take a step back and not be so kind of consumed either by the physical pain or the emotional distress or the mental anguish and actually find some space and freedom in relationship to those things. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of all the um, compassion for ourselves and others, you, you talk about an emotion that you refer to as sympathetic joy and how that could actually be beneficial to our lives and our mindfulness practice. Could you speak a little bit about what what is sympathetic joy and how can we start to develop it? Yeah, so sympathetic joy is one of my favorite qualities, and it's it's one of those qualities that um, comes from the Buddhist tradition, and it's it's a word, the, 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 the word in Pali, which is the language these texts are written down in, is mudita, and it's it, what's interesting about that word is we don't really have a, one word to, to describe it, but it, yes, it, it, it means appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. Basically, it's the joy that happens, or the, the happiness that happens when we turn our attention to someone who's feeling happy or successful or joy. And, and in that, when we can open to that with, with a kind awareness, we similarly, it's like it's contagious. We similarly feel glad and hot and joyful. So it's a bit like, you know, watching your child or a friend's child or your grandchild and they're playing in the beach, you know, or in the park and they're, you know, they come back and they found a bug and they're so happy that they found a bug and you can feel happiness for them, even if you don't care about bugs, but you can enjoy their happiness. Mm. And so there's a great phrase from the Dalai Lama who says, you know, when we cultivate this quality, we increase our chances of happiness by seven billion to one. In that, <laughs> there are many, many opportunities, right? And many, you know, all the time, there's people having joyful experiences or mm-hmm. having success. And why this quality is so important? Because if we don't cultivate it, often the first knee-jerk response is either we feel envious, we feel jealous, we feel like, oh, they're so happy over there, it's going to be less for me. Or, you know, they can't have so much success because then there's less you know, it left to go round for me. And it takes us out of that scarcity deficient mode and just allows us to appreciate, oh, you know, you got a promotion at work, fantastic. Or, you know, your kid got a, you know, an award at school, fantastic. Or, um, you know, you had a great yoga class, you know, great. May, may the next one be equally good or even better. And so it's a very expansive quality. And, um, and, and, the, and, the way to practice it is just to, um, whenever you see or hear someone having a positive experience, like one of my fa- favorite places to do this is at airports. I often fly into London Heathrow. It's a big international airport. People come from all over the world. And often at the arrivals gate, mm. um, is big families, you know, whether it's from India or Africa or China or Middle East. And, you know, I imagine 
they haven't seen each other for a long time and there's this lovely kind of you know welcoming and celebration right. and joy awesome. and, and I just love watching that and just wishing them happiness like what a, what a sweet moment and yeah. life is full of those moments where we can delight in and celebrate the happiness of others and it, and, it, and of course it's a win-win because in doing that we also feel uplifted and joyful Mm. I love that. And I love how you gave a practical example of how we can just start to look for the joy in others and join into it consciously. And how many times, like you, you said that Dalai Lama quote, that we could we could experience joy 7 billion times over because of all the people on the planet if we would just join in. Yeah, it also it really strengthens our humanity too because you start to realize, I feel like through doing that, you start to see how similar we all are. You start to see the love for each other because you're right. Like when we love others and we're happy for others, it's not... It's actually the opposite of what our mind is trying to convince us. You know, you brought up how our mind might be like, well, there's less or they, well, now I'm jealous because it's lacking and now there's not enough for me. But it's actually completely the opposite. The more we love, the more we share in the joy of others, the more joy and love we experience. Right, right. Yeah, it's a very interesting practice in that way that, you know, the ego tends to live in scarcity and deficiency. And when we cannot, when we can not identify for that, then we have a chance for feeling a lot more positive qualities, which, and, and of course, mindfulness is one of those doorways that allows us to see that. Yes, absolutely. So another chapter, uh, speaking of the ego and lack and scarcity, the, the ultimate lack and scarcity being uh, what I would think of as its, its ultimate fear of death, you have a chapter called Embracing Death's Invitation, um, so I would love to hear how, uh, what you have to say on how we can use mindfulness to not only accept death, but actually use it for something incredibly positive. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, the, this, the conversation of death comes in the context of the broader conversation of, of embracing change and loss and ultimately death. And of course, death is for most people something that's feared. Um, and we may have had painful experiences of losing loved ones and friends, etc. Um, and again, it's one of those principles or practices that this, the practice of mindfulness is orienting us towards, which is we can either turn towards something with acceptance and awareness, or we can fight and resist and run and of course there's no really running from death because it catches up with you eventually and um so so the uh, the practice and there's different practices within the tradition of um contemplating death contemplating one's own death the inevitability of it the uncertainty of it um and again, the, the, the attitude is not one of doing this to, for, you know, to create a sense of morbidity or depression, but really just acknowledging this is you know, the truth of life. And the more that we can allow and accept and turn towards it with curiosity, with acceptance, um, the more likely we are to, um, one, not be surprised, not be so angry, but actually just understanding this is just the, the way of things. And one of the reasons I teach my meditation uh, retreats, most of them outside, 
is that when we go outside in nature, of course, you look around any, however beautiful the environment, you will always see both uh, birth and, and growth mm-hmm. and flourishing and decay and death. And, and we just get oh, that's a part of the natural part of the cycle. And so um, the more that we attune to that, the less we are surprised by it and the more that we can actually be able to tolerate some of the feelings that come up in relationship to it. So when we are confronted more closely with the mortality of ourselves or others, we've got more capacity to deal with it. Yeah, it seems so interesting to, to ask people to start to embrace their death while they're, while they're living, but but it really truly does just add to the preciousness of life and, and helps you to appreciate life more fully. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I really resonate with uh, bringing in nature too, because as I've been here in Hawaii, I've uh, gotten really into gardening and landscaping and all of that. And, and I love that you're, you're pointing out, I have absolutely seen that, that every time I go into nature, I also see, the death cycle. process and it's funny too to even to even add a little more to it i've also noticed like that death right it literally composts into new life so it's like really right. showing nature really shows you the cycle how, how like nothing is wasted like uh, life in a sense never ends so on a spiritual level it's kind of i i feel like it's helped teach me the eternity of it all too like how it it's a passing temporary phase of a cycle but it actually is never ending it's this beautiful uh, circle rather than some linear straight line and then a stopping point it's actually this circle and it really has helped me i know see the beauty of that embrace death's invitation as a as a blessing rather than something to be afraid of your book is full of so much insight and we could ask you so many more yes. questions. <laughs> you could um, talk for hours. <laughs> yes, but um, just to wrap it up for, for our listeners who are definitely going to be interested in your book, From Suffering to Peace, what is it that you hope readers take away take away from reading this? Yeah, well, I think I hope that um, they take away that mindfulness practice is accessible it's practical, you can apply it into every facet of your life, and that not only does it cultivate awareness, but it cultivates really deep self-understanding and insight so we can learn to genuinely find peace and well-being in the midst of whatever situation we're in. Awesome. And where can our listeners find out more about these mindfulness, nature excursions that you do, and where can they find out more about you and your book? Yeah, so um, my main website is uh, my name, markcoleman.org, and that's M-A-R-K, Coleman, with a uh, .org. And um, on there I have information about my nature retreats. I also run meditation teacher trainings, both in mindfulness and in nature meditation. And I have lots of books and audio and other things, calendar, and I teach all over the the U.S. and beyond, uh, mostly nature meditation trainings so um yeah feel free to check that out and um hope you enjoy the book and it's been great chatting with you on your podcast thank you so much it's been so wonderful thank you namaste 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 take care